0: with Elliot, but he wasn't massively superior to a number of the other people that we tested but but he's better than everybody else uh, and I think it's because he doesn't seem to fatigue as much as anybody else does and, you know, if you look at his running technique in that final half a mile, it looks exactly the same as it did in the first half and I don't think scientifically we've got to the bottom of what that represents.
1: Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Alan McCohen. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, lecturer and researcher in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, fellow sports dietitian and researcher, Steph Gaskell. Can you believe it, Steph? It is our 50th episode today.
2: I know. I'm very, very, very excited for this one, Al. Um, how about you?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. We've been planning this one for a while now. We decided that we are going to do something very special for our 50th Mm -hmm. um, and probably deviate, I guess, a little bit from what we normally do in our normal format for the podcast. Um, But yeah, no, very much uh, looking forward to it. It was a great interview uh, that we recorded the other day and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting stuck into this one and, and sharing it with the listeners. And what's been happening with you?
2: Funnily enough, this week, getting um, or well, the last couple of weeks actually, uh, been getting people that um have been coming in with Reds relative energy deficiency mm. in sports. So, um, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. So, getting some referrals for that, and um, yeah, and and it, and it's been good using our resources as well to to help educate. So, um, yeah, that's been really useful. Yeah.
1: I've certainly found and, you know, we're talking about our 50th episode today and I've certainly found I've quite often used, you know, different podcast episodes that we've recorded in the past and pointed clients to them as an education resource. And I know other practitioners I've spoken to use them for that purpose mm. as well, which has been great.
2: Mm. Not really yeah.
1: what we set out to do it for, but it's been a nice little spinoff.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. And what mm. about you? What have you been up to? Are you, you've um, probably been partying like after your exam marking.
1: Yes, it's been uh, really nice having all the marking finished for the year. So yeah, just the final meetings to cross the T's and dot the I's on all the final results. I obviously mm-hmm. can't say what they are because if any of the students are listening, we can't tell them before their results are released. But um, yeah, it's, it's good to have all of that out of the way and, and done for another year, which is great. And um, looking forward to getting my teeth sunk into a few little research little bits and pieces on the side at the moment, which is nice, Mm -hmm. and then having a bit of a break over the Christmas, New Year period as well, which will also be good.
2: Yeah. So, yeah,
1: yeah. looking forward to it. All right. Well, here on The Long Munch, we normally take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, but we decided to be a bit greedy and pick our own this week based on our (laughs) own interest (laughs) uh, and not so much a question, but uh, a general topic. Um, So normally we look at the things that people are commonly asking about and things that will help them with their training and their racing. And there will be bits of that in this one as well. Um, But we decided for our 50th, um, we're going to have a bit of a celebratory episode Steph and uh, do something a little bit different for episode 25 so what's Mm -hmm. our topic?
2: Our topic is uh, nutrition for breaking two with Professor Andrew Jones so when we talk about nutrition for breaking two just because there will be people that you know aren't runners um, we're talking about breaking two hours for the marathon which is no easy feat um, the I think the fastest actual marathon time um in competition is, is it two oh two? It's or
1: two oh one forty. I think two oh
2: one forty. Um, yep. and so yeah, we'll kind of explain you know what, and you'll see in the in the interview um what the actual event was. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this, and I I don't know if you know this out, but my nickname um when I was working at the running company in, in Clifton Hill was sub-158 um, mm-hmm. because um, I always uh, sort of had that bit of a joke where, yeah, um, you know, like Kipchoge's already broken the two hours, so now I reckon um, the next one's going to be 158.
1: Yep. Fair yeah. enough, fair enough. And they were <laughs> suggesting that you were going to be the one to do it?
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, nah, really, really looking um, looking forward to this one. And um, it, even though, obviously, you know, our listeners and like a large majority of the population will not be breaking two hours for the marathon, um, there's going to be some really good um, concepts and nutrition messages that you can definitely. Um, you know, use for your own um, sporting performance and training.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and obviously a fascinating insight to to what happened with the the Nike project as well. Yep. Mm. Um, and so, just a quick mention also that our uh, this is also the the one year anniversary of the podcast. So we had I think a week off over Christmas last year. And we had a week off when you were moving house and I was in the Mm -hmm. middle of marking Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of months ago as well. Other than that, we've done one every week for the last 12 months, Steph. So um, 50th episode, but also the one-year anniversary of the podcast. Uh, And so we're going to have a special one-year anniversary podcast next week uh, and we'll tell everyone at the end a bit about what that involves.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, so we've had a few social media shout-outs and people contacting us this week, Steph, via Instagram, Facebook, or
2: Twitter. Mm, Yeah, we have. Um, Yeah, we often have um, Jessica Rothwell, who's a a sports dietitian and and used to be an elite race walker herself. Um, She's often, you know, very supportive of our our podcast and she's really excited for, for this particular one coming up.
1: Mm, um, Jess works with Athletics Australia, um, mm. and particularly worked with the the race walkers, as you said, but also the the marathon team. So the both the guys and girls over at the Tokyo Olympics.
2: Yeah, yep, and uh, and then we've got uh, Mary Mitchell. She's a uh, guess where from our
1: your hometown of Adelaide. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh so yes she is um and she's a mad um triathlete like i can't I wouldn't even be able to count how many triathlons she's done um and all over the world um but yeah she's she's actually got a question she'd love us to um take a look at which is looking at i guess um nutrition around the around the aging athlete. so looking at you know, does aging affect metabolism? Um, and then what's the implications for that in terms of nutrition? So uh, yeah, we will definitely have a look at that for, for Mary. And um, yeah, that will be next next year. Uh, and I, I know that you and I already have some people on our radar for, for that one.
1: Yeah, And I guess we have had the, the request last week from Basil for nutrition for, for younger athletes mm-hmm. and now we've got nutrition for the older athletes. So we're yep. going at all ends of the spectrum.
2: All ends, all ends. Um, and we'll cover it all. Uh, yep. And then Evangeline, um, she'll tell me off for pronouncing her surname. Um, what do you reckon now? Manzouris?
1: Mansioris.
2: Mancyoris, yeah, that, that sounds better. Sorry, Evangeline. <laughs> um, so she. And uh, she's from? <laughs> she is also from Adelaide, would you believe it? Correct. <laughs> and um, yeah, she's been a wonderful support of ours too, Al. Um, and um, she lectures at uh, yeah the University of South Australia in, in sports nutrition um, and does a lot of research in the Mediterranean um, way of eating and the implications of that on health. Uh, and yes, yeah, so she's, she's often sharing our podcast. So thank you very much for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course you can also listen to the podcast, obviously you're listening to it now, but on any of the the main podcasting platforms Uh, and obviously with Apple Podcasts, there's ratings and reviews. We've had a new five-star rating. So thank you to whoever left that because they're obviously anonymous. Um, And we also had a new review from Mary, which I'm assuming is probably the same Mary that you just mentioned, Steph.
2: (laughs) Thanks, Mary. Uh, Mm. And she, um, yeah, so she wrote... Great podcast discussing up-to-date research on topical nutrition questions and issues and real-life experiences. Well worth listening to, and I eagerly await each episode. The series on body composition, relative energy deficiency in sport was outstanding. Congratulations to both Alan and Steph, uh, highly recommended.
1: Wow. Thank you very much, Mary. Great to Mm. hear Great feedback from people. And of course, if you want to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate that. Or if you just want to get in touch with us to suggest a topic like Mary has done, um, you can contact us via social media, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at The Long Munch for all three of those. Uh, And finally, we also a shout out to um, Liz Broad, who's another sports dietitian. Uh, And we actually mentioned her the other week on the podcast Mm -hmm. with her podcast para sports nutrition uh, she actually did an episode last week on a caffeine with associate professor ben desbro from griffith university who's been on this podcast talking about beer after exercise uh, because as he mentioned in that podcast he does all the fun stuff he does caffeine mm-hmm. he does beer and he does um, cbd but um, she mentioned on that one that she recommended our episode episode 20b with Alistair Donohoe, obviously a paracyclist himself, um, and that was around his use of, of caffeine in, in exercise. Uh, and he actually did that interview f- with us from his hotel in Izu um, over in Japan awaiting his race at the Paralympics.
2: Mm, yep. Without uh, further ado, let's get stuck into this one. And first of all, let's um, introduce who... Um, Professor Andrew Jones is, Alan.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. So normally we have a rant for these episodes, but we're not going to rant this time because it's not really a question so much. Uh, And I can't really think of something to be angry about with Breaking 2, to be honest. Um, So there you go. Um, So Andy Jones is, I love this title. It's it's one of those really long titles like you would hear on The (laughs) Simpsons or something. The Assistant Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Innovation and Business and also a Professor of uh, Applied Physiology at the University of Exeter. Uh, That's a big mouthful, Andy. Mm. Um, But Andy's a a real expert in running physiology. Um, You'll hear in this interview, he was a former elite runner himself as a junior, Mm. Um, but he's done extensive research um, since the 1990s around a whole range of topics to do with with running physiology and and endurance physiology more broadly. So he's looked at things like the oxygen use during running, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about at the start of this interview. Um, He's looked at things like the determinants of performance during endurance exercise, and we'll talk a bit about how he used that sort of science to predict, I guess, the types of times that the the guys might have been capable of running in the the Nike Breaking 2 project. Some people might know Andy as Andy Beatrude. That's his Mm -hmm. Twitter handle because he's done a lot of research into um, nitrates and and beetroot juice supplementation for athletes, uh, and that sort of started in the lead-up to the London Olympics. Uh, he's on the editorial board for six international journals, which is uh, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and he came on board as a consultant to Nike for their Breaking Two project in 2016-17 and worked, obviously, with the, the three main athletes involved with that. But he was involved in the testing and selection process uh, and then working with the three athletes that they did select um, to attempt to break the two-hour marathon. So Lelisa De Siza, Zerzene and, of course, Elliot Kipchoge. Um, prior to that, Andy also worked with many top-class UK runners and has done some work with um, UK athletics, uh, and that includes um, a lot of time spent with the former women's world record holder Paula Radcliffe as well, uh, and he worked with her for, for quite a long period of time throughout her career, and we'll touch a little bit on, on his work with Paula as well during this interview. But, yeah, fantastic opportunity to have um, to have Andy give some insight into the nutrition planning and, and implementation for the Breaking 2 project. I think a lot of talk about the project was about the shoes, about the pacing, about the you know the special track that they chose with the Monza Grand Prix circuit and the weather conditions and, and all of these sorts of things. Um, and one thing that didn't really get talked about quite as much was the nutrition aspect of that. So we get a, an insight into this that certainly I hadn't heard before. And, and certainly if you've seen the National Geographic documentary, for example, you'll see and and recognize Andy's voice from that, Um, but they don't really touch on the nutrition in very much detail in that documentary. So it was great to get a bit of more insight into that from Andy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as you said in the intro as well, Steph, um, we also get a bit of information that people can apply to their own running as well. So it's not all just about, you know, people like Elliot Kipchoge and and how to um, run insanely fast like he can, um, but some of these concepts and things that you can take yourself for your own running benefit as well.
2: Yeah, awesome. Good good intro. Uh, So let's um, fire up and get stuck into this one.
1: Yeah, hopefully everyone enjoys. All right, Professor Andy Jones, welcome to the Long Munch podcast. How are you going over there in the UK?
0: Doing okay, thanks very much, yeah. Um, thanks for sort of accommodating my time zone for the interview, appreciate it. Yeah,
1: no, not a problem. It's great to have you here and um, I think what's going to be a really exciting topic for a lot of people. Um, But we'll just start off with, uh, I guess, some of the stuff that you've done earlier in your career, like you've been involved in in running in various ways throughout your career, both as an athlete yourself and obviously as a a physiologist now. You, I think, still hold the British under 18 half marathon record, 106.55, I believe. Um, So you're obviously a a pretty accomplished athlete, um, but then you moved more into, I guess, the the science side of running and done some really cool and really important research on a variety of topics in that area from, I guess, you know, the um, oxygen and uptake kinetics through to things like, you know, beetroot juice and and nitrates and things like that. But I thought to start off with, uh, I saw this picture on Twitter Uh, a little while ago. um, And it's a view in the early 1990s, I think. And there's there's three of you in the photo. There's one running in the middle with a a mouthpiece in. There's uh, a guy on a bike holding, I'm not sure exactly what it is. And then there's you running alongside the runner uh, with a big bag over your shoulder that kind of looks like a giant wine cask. So I thought, let's start (laughs) off by uh, describing what this is and, and what the research was, and I guess the significance of that.
0: Yeah, so that, that was one of the very first studies I ever did. That was the first um, first part of my PhD, which was all about looking at um, how do we help runners and, and coaches, really? You know, what can we measure? What are, the, what are the optimal protocols so that the things that we measure on them in the lab actually tell them something about their performance, but also can be useful in changing their training so that they get better over time? Um, so, you know, really interested in developing treadmill protocols that reflect um, performance and training in the real world. So the idea was, you know, when, when you run on a treadmill at a given speed, the energy cost and therefore the oxygen cost um, might be a bit different to when you're running outdoors because obviously on a treadmill, you're not actually moving forward. Um, mm. You're still expending energy, but you, you're, the, the energy cost is a little bit less because you're not having to overcome the air resistance. So the idea was, you know, let's let's run people at, um, on, on the treadmill at different gradients at 0%, so completely horizontal, but also at 1%, 2% and even 3%. But also run them outdoors at exactly the same speed um, and and look at what the oxygen cost is when they're running outdoors you know between the group of athletes that we had was we ran them between ten kilometers per hour and 18 kilometers per hour so a reasonable range of speeds and we did the same thing on the treadmill and the idea was you know what what gradient would you need to put on the treadmill to compensate for the lack of air resistance in the lab compared to the field so what you see in the photo there is um, uh, You've got the athlete in the middle, the, with the, one, the one with the mouthpiece in. Um, I was running alongside holding the Douglas bag where we're collecting the expired air. And then the guy on the bike is is the pacer, basically. He's making sure that they're going at whatever speed it is. We wanted them to go at 10 kilometres per hour, 12, 15, whatever. So uh, that's in Eastbourne, in the south east of England on the seafront there, really flat. So we used to get up very early in the morning when it was quite still. And have these um, have these runners, you know, go, go up and down in the steady state at all these different speeds, and we'd measure oxygen uptake basically. And um, ultimately, the finding was that, uh, you know, at ten kilometers per hour, when you're running on a on a treadmill, there isn't very much difference between indoors and outdoors. But as you get faster, the difference becomes a little bit greater. And therefore, to make, um, you know, to normalize that, and actually adjusting the treadmill gradient to about one percent um enables you to make sure that the heart rate the lactate the oxygen uptake are a good match so you know that's what actually lots of lots of labs do that now around the world it's mm-hmm. fairly impactful so it just means that when you're assessing athletes this what you're measuring on them at a particular speed you can translate and transfer into their performances when they actually start running and training and racing mm-hmm. outside
1: yeah and is that because at the higher speed obviously you have more uh, air resistance exactly
0: Yeah, and I mean, the rule of thumb was that 1% worked quite well right across the board, but actually, technically, what you should do is gradually increase the treadmill gradient alongside the increase in the treadmill speed. So at very low speed, zero is fine. Then it should be maybe, you know, half a percent. One percent works really well kind of in the middle. When you get to 17, 18, then one and a half or even two percent is actually more appropriate.
1: Yeah, yeah, cool. Awesome. And I think anyone who's done testing on a treadmill will, as you said, probably be familiar with this. There's been a huge uptake of, the, I guess, the 1% rule, for lack of a better term, in labs all, yeah. all around the world, which is great.
0: Actually, I've been in gyms myself in you know, different places around the world. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get one of the gym instructors come up and say, oh, have you set it at 1%? <laughs> <laughs> I know all about yep. that. <laughs> yep. Yep. And
1: just the Douglas bag for people who aren't aware um, is, I guess, just another way of capturing the the air that that people are expiring uh, while they're exercising. So rather than the machines that we usually use these days where it measures each individual breath, um, called breath by breath, it actually captures it all in a bag and then you take a sample of that and analyse it later, which I guess is the, the original way it was done going right back to probably the 1920s or 30s. Yeah, and actually back in the lab
0: that I was working in back in the early 90s, we didn't have a, a metabolic cart. We, we were using Douglas Bag technology. So yeah, you're right, you, know, you collect the expired air of the athlete over a given period of time, take it back to the lab, you measure the O2 and CO2 content and then you evacuate the bag so you know how much air has been breathed and then it's a relatively simple equation to work out how much of the oxygen that they've breathed in has actually been utilised.
1: Yeah, cool. All right. Um, so today we're talking more so about your involvement with the Breaking Two project. So this was the the first um, attempt with with Nike that happened back in, I guess, twenty seventeen was when the attempt was running. But presumably you you know you started on it in twenty sixteen. So I guess the first question is how you became involved with the project and and what was your role with with Nike and and the guys.
0: Yeah. Um... I guess it was, you know, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've been involved in running one way or another for a long time, first as an athlete and then as a sports scientist, physiologist and whatever. And and I'd always been interested in, in researching the limitations to distance running performance, the determinants of it, but also working in, in a parallel fashion with athletes, so developing these protocols, making sure that what we you know, it's not just for research purposes. I'm obviously interested in taking the field forward and finding out new, new facts Mm. and what causes fatigue and all of that kind of stuff. Um, but as a former athlete, I was really interested in working with athletes to to make them better. So that, that meant that I ended up becoming, um, sort of lead physiologist for want of a better consultant physiologist to UK athletics. Um, and I started actually as part of the the PhD work, I started um, working with, not just local athletes, but even national level athletes. So they would travel across the country to see to see me in the lab down there in Eastbourne. And, um, you know, you can, so you start to build up a bit of a reputation then for someone who can help runners and coaches out. And this was before we had the English Institute of Sports or anything, so all the tests intended to be done from, from labs anyway. But, of course, sports science occasionally has had a bad reputation for just using the athletes to generate data, and then the athletes never, never seeing that data or certainly not getting yeah. anything useful from the experience. And I was... Pretty keen to change that, um, but you know, right from about 1992, I started working with a young um, runner called Paula Radcliffe, who uh, obviously took the world by storm a bit later. <laughs> but um, so we could we could get into that at some point. But I, you know, I, I started working with Paula, lots of other of the top British distance runners over many years. So I think you know, Nike were aware of the work that I published, but also the very applied work that I'd done with athletes, the famous runners that I'd been associated with. And myself and people like Mike Joyner were presenting at international conferences about the two-hour marathon because back then mm. you know, the world record was about two hundred two, two hundred two fifty-seven. Actually, so you are starting to get closer and closer. If you look at the, the sort of timeline, it looked as if two hours might might actually be on the horizon. And then it was a case of, well, how soon could it happen, and what would you need to put in place uh, to make you know to give the best athletes the best possible chance, and what are the physiological requirements? What kind of athlete would you need? to make that sub two hour um, a reality as well. So, so we'd started to talk about that and I'm sure there were Nike representatives in the audience at places like ACSM. And they probably thought, you know what, we could probably expedite this because we sponsor a lot of the best athletes already. And we've got the the wherewithal to be able to put on, put on the show where, where well, we give those athletes the best chance of breaking too. Um, and so, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get the, the call from Nike. It's, I can't remember whether I was already a member of their scientific advisory board or that. It was all kind of a bit simultaneous, but um, they basically took me into their confidence that they were actually contemplating giving this a crack and, and would I be interested in coming on board with them. And of course, I was <laughs> first to put my hand up and say, yes, please. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, obviously Nike have got fantastic facilities, fantastic scientists, but I think they felt they needed some very, very specific distance running physiology expertise. So, you know, they wanted to kind of draft me in to, to help out with that. And uh, it was a fantastic experience. It's you know, the culmination of of all of that work that I've just described, really, from the you know, you, yeah. do, you think about the, you do the research. You think about what are the limitations, what are the determinants, and you want to help athletes. And this was a chance to bring all of that stuff together in one sort of mega event, really, which which you know everybody was going to be watching.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you know most people have probably seen the um, the National Geographic documentary on this, um, and that the documentary itself, I guess, follows the the lead up into the the event, and then the event itself in in Monza and the the Grand Prix track in May 2017 and it follows obviously the three athletes that were um, sort of the, the, the key athletes trying to break the two hours, so uh, Lelisa de Cesar, Zerzanay Tadesi de and, and of course Elliot Kipchoge. Um, so how long before that day in Monza did you guys sort of start working with them? Is this like something that took years or six months or something else?
0: You know, I, my memory's starting to fade on it, but it's at least a, a year. It's probably more like 18 months or even two years, probably two years since we started to, th- to think about it. And then the team started to come together, everything, all the approvals seemed to happen. Um, and then things just kind of cascaded really fr- from there. And the first phase of that was to identify which athletes, you know, how many athletes, would it be one, would it be three, would it be six? Um <phone rings> You know, first of all, you've got to have your raw material. So it's, it's a case of yeah. identifying which of those athletes, uh, you know, who, who could do it, if anybody. I guess that was the first step. And then, simultaneously, think about the logistics of it. Where is this going to happen? How are we going to make sure that the temperature is right and, the you know, the course is right and lo- millions of logistics? And, of course, Nike's such a big company that they're able to, um, to work kind of collectively and cohesively to, to put, that, um, put that on the map. So... Yeah, at least 18 months beforehand.
1: Yeah, yeah, now that makes sense, you know, given all the things that went into it and, and what was involved. So yeah, I think yeah, yeah. the documentary sort of makes it appear like it was a much shorter period of time, but I think that's always right. the way with those kind of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's let's look into, I guess, a bit of the, the physiology side of things first, because that, I think, set us up nicely for the nutrition requirements and then obviously, you know, how that was delivered. Um, and I know, I think it was in a presentation that you gave, because um, you, know, you sort of published some of that testing data more recently um, that you did as part of that project. And, and I think in the, the video abstract of that, you sort of made that comment around, you know, marathon and running speed is kind of the sustainable oxidative metabolic rate. So you know, how much um, intensity you can kind of maintain divided by the running economy. Um so the oxygen cost of running. Can you just explain that a little bit to the listeners in terms of what that means um, and, and why the equation is the way that it is?
0: Yeah, so so ultimately obviously so it's an aerobic activity, it's an endurance sport, you're gonna be going for two hours. So basically, you know, all of the energy comes from aerobic or oxidative metabolism. And therefore you have to find what is what what is your highest VO2? that you can run out, that you can stabilize essentially, because there's there's a certain speed below which you can still maintain homeostasis. You call it the critical speed or the lactate turn point. And, and you go just above that, and actually you can't maintain that steady state anymore. Your VO2 will continue to drift with time, get the so-called slow component of the VO2 kinetics, and eventually you'll, you'll hit your VO2 max, you start to use some of your anaerobic capacity, lots of things related to fatigue development, you know change much more rapidly and uh, and you wouldn't be able to sustain you know that speed for the distance so having a very high um, vo2 obviously it can't be higher than your vo2 max so it's nice to have a high vo2 max because that's the ceiling but if you've got a very high vo2 max that's cool but you probably also need to operate to be able to operate at a high fraction of that for quite a long period and, and that's what we found with these the, the athletes that we select is that they were able to do that but having having you know being able to operate at about you know 4 liters of oxygen uptake per minute for long long periods is all very well but you also have to be very efficient in translating that energy into speed over the ground and that's where the economy comes in as well mm. so you could you know you you could have a very high steady state vo2 but terrible you know running technique and it means that you can only go at 5 minute mile pace which just isn't going to be fast enough So, you know, you you need a a combination of a high VO2 max to give you that sort of scope, you need a high lactate threshold so that you can operate at a high fraction of your VO2 max. But the third thing is that you need to be really economical in using that energy to transfer your body mass from A to B on the the road. So that's what we were looking for really was an athlete that had the right combination of all of those three physiological components.
1: Mm. And I know having a look at um, some of the figures in the, the paper where you publish some of that data, there is a bit of difference, particularly in the running economy between the, the different runners that you tested. And I think you tested 16 in all from memory. Um, for, for the listeners who are maybe, you know, trying to improve their own running, is like running economy, how uh, trainable do you think it is? And, and what sort of things should people be doing if they're trying to improve their running economy?
0: Yeah, it's very trainable. That's one of the, the things about uh, running compared to something like cycling. You know, So as you get older, um, you don't necessarily, well, eventually you'll decline. I mean, what happens as you get a bit older is your VO2 max will gradually fall off. You know, It's related to your maximal cardiac output. And as your maximal heart rate gets a bit lower with every year that, of your advancing age and your VO2 max might fall. But you can compensate for that in running, particularly by being a bit more economical. And it's basically just practicing running. You know, I think our bodies—if uh, you expose them enough to these kind of stresses and stimuli—they will find a way to make you do that task more efficiently, more economically. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you just—you just change your running technique a bit, I think. So that, um, <clears throat> yeah, you're, you know. And an example would be with—I mentioned Paula Radcliffe earlier, but I published a case study back in probably about two thousand and five, where you know we look at her VO two max data over. 12 or 13 years, and it basically doesn't change from the age of mm. 18 to when she, when she ran um ran 25. Um, but her running economy improved substantially. It started off at about 205 mils of oxygen per kilogram per kilometre, which is kind of average-ish. Um, but by the time she set the world record, it was about 170 mils per kilogram per kilometre. So she got you know, 15 plus percent more efficient over that mm. period. So, it is definitely something that can improve, but you've got to stick at it for the, for the long term, really. You have to be very consistent. So, you know, it's just accumulating a relatively high volume of training over a long period and trying not to get injured and, you know, running most days, most weeks, most months. And it's people like Paula and Elliot, who obviously, you know, are the, are the absolute um, epitome of the, their sports and just shows you what it takes. You need to be in the sport for, for the long haul, really, and you have to just keep at it really day after day, really commit yourself to it for 15 years, <laughs> I suppose, to yeah. um, yeah. so really optimise all of those uh, those those gifts that you have in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and you mentioned that term critical speed before, uh, or some people might know it as critical power, particularly if they're a cyclist and it's more about power output than running speed. Um, and, you know, you've done a lot of work on that, um, sort of the physiology behind critical speed and, and how that kind of works. Would... For, for people that are kind of struggling to get their head around that term because they might have heard it, they might have heard of lactate threshold or anaerobic threshold, all these sorts of things, do you feel that critical speed is like just a more functional way to describe those other things which are more physiologically described, I guess, from blood markers or whatever it is? Or do you think it's quite different?
0: No, it's essentially the same thing. I, I would say the critical speed is really, is really the gold standard because it's actually it's derived from performance. And when we're measuring gas exchange or or lactate and trying to identify various thresholds, we're, we're really making an estimation of that of that critical speed. So, basically, to derive your your critical speed, you would need um, you know a recent personal best performance at a range of different distances, somewhere between two minutes and fifteen minutes. So, if you've got an eight hundred meter personal best, fifteen hundred, maybe ideally a three k and a five k, that gives you four data points. So, you know the distance you've covered. You know the time that it took you to cover those distances, and that's actually all you need. So you plot distance against time; it's a linear relationship. You should get a nice straight line fit, and the slope of that line, of that regression uh, line, is, is your critical speed, and where it intercepts the y-axis on the, which is the distance, that's what we call your d prime. So that's, you know, the critical speed is more the oxidative um, factor, and then the where the d prime, as we call it, or w prime for cycling is uh, is really an, an anaerobic component. But you've got those two things, which tell you a great deal about how fast you can go at a range of intermediate distances. If you know what that critical speed is, um, you know that if you go above that, um, you're going to fatigue more rapidly than if you're below it. And the causes of fatigue are likely to be very different as well. So we did a study where we calculated the critical speed of a range of uh, great marathon athletes and found that they were able to sustain on average, you know, 96% of their critical speed for the whole distance. So they, they kind of intuitively know where that is and they operate just fractionally below it because they appreciate that if they, if they go above it, they're not going to be able to be in a steady state and they'll fatigue really quickly. And, in you know, we break two. In addition to all the testing that we did in the, in the lab and in the field, we also calculated critical speeds just to give us that um, additional input into our selection process.
1: Mm. And and I guess, as as you're saying there, it sounds like, you know, really experienced athletes will kind of be able to work that out by feel over time anyway, in terms of how they pace themselves.
0: Yeah, for sure. You know, if you're out um, running, maybe with a group of other people, um, or, you know, you could be on a treadmill and you could gradually increase the speed yourself, or you could be outdoors and you could gradually get a bit faster and faster. And there'll be a particular speed where you perceive, hang on, all of a sudden, Whereas I was in control of my breathing and this seems like something I can sustain for a long period, you only have to go fractionally higher and you're like, hang on, this is really tough. I'm not going to be able to hold this for very much longer. So that's really what the critical speed is. It's it's knowing, and that's your critical, It's also your, reflects your critical metabolic rate. You know, there's a speed below which things are going to be steady and will remain steady for a long period. Um, and you just go just fractionally above that and things get, uh, get pretty difficult quite quickly.
1: Mm. Yep. Um, now, throughout the documentary, and this might actually relate to sort of the critical speed we were just talking about before, but throughout the documentary, you make predictions about how fast you think the guys are going to be able to run the marathon. Uh, and I remember seeing on Twitter, I think uh, uh, something you'd written on the on a scrap of paper, which you then sort of posted the day after what you thought Elliot was was capable of running on the day, and I think you're out by about twenty seconds. Um, but how do you go about making those kind of predictions? Is, it, is that based on things like calculating the critical speed, or was there some other
0: art or science to it? Well, it's a, it's a bit like the equation that you you said right at the beginning of the show. So if you know what the uh, sustainable oxidative metabolic rate is, so basically it's what. So we estimate we estimate the critical speed from the from the lactate turn point. So it's this: if you plot lactate against speed we really end up with these sort of three phases. So lactate stays very close to baseline for quite, for a few speeds, um, but there'll be a specific speed above which it begins to rise, you know, beyond sort of one to two millimolar. And it will do that for a kilometer per hour or two. Uh, and then it will just kind of take off. And uh, that lactate turn point is a reasonable sort of marker of where the critical speed is. And so what we do with breaking two was we work, you know, you work out what that, what that speed is, what the VO2 is at that speed. Um, And that's really the sustain, you know, so that's the the fraction of the VO2 max that they're likely to be able to go at. And you know what their VO2 max is as well, because you've measured that. So you've got the sustainable oxidative metabolic rate, and then we've measured their running economy. So you divide the one value by the other, and it gives you a speed that theoretically they could sustain for a pretty long period. Um, Now, that's probably going to overestimate what they're capable of, because it makes the assumption that none of those three variables change from... You know, mile mm-hmm. one to mile twenty-six, and we know that you know certainly your running economy deteriorates. So yep. it might predict that an athlete's capable of one fifty-seven or one fifty-eight, but you have to factor in that there's going to be some deterioration of those variables as as the race goes on. But of course, what you want to try to do is help the athlete uh, not deteriorate as much as possible. And there's a nutritional factor to that, but. There's like a a resilience or a fatigue fatigue resistance component as well, which is very difficult for us to measure. But I do think um, you know there's there's a lot in that. If you if you look at there've been studies done in the past where they've compared the the best East Africans against the best Europeans or Americans, and in terms of VO two max and running economy and such like, there's not very much to separate them, and yet. You know, when it comes to performance, there's no question that the East Africans will, you know, wipe mm-hmm. the floor with everybody else. And actually, with with Elliot, um, I mean, I can't tell you anything about his actual numbers or, or those of any of the other right. athletes that we tested. But he wasn't massively superior to a number of the other people that we tested. But you know, you, you were clearly going to give him the nod as the, his performances spoke for themselves. So clearly, we were going to select him. Very glad that we did. Um, but he's better than everybody else, uh, and I think it's because he doesn't seem to fatigue as much as anybody else does. And, you know, if you look at his running technique in that final half a mile, it looks exactly the same as it did in the first half a mile. So there's something about, um, you know, not fading like that. And and um, I don't think scientifically we've got to the bottom of, of what that represents. Mm.
1: Yeah, definitely, and that was actually giving my next question was, you know, obviously we've talked about sort of physiology, and then there's those bits that we we don't fully understand yet. Um, but where do you think psychology comes into this equation? Um, and do you think that that was kind of evident in the athletes you've worked with, or particularly with, say, Elliot in the in the Breaking Two project?
0: Yeah, and part part of the selection process wasn't just. It um, wasn't just the physiology and the previous performances. It was. It was also how excited are these people about being given this opportunity, you yeah. know, and and how much do they believe in the in the concept, in the project, and in their own ability. Mm. And you know, Elliot was head and shoulders above everybody else as far as that one. This is the opportunity he'd always dreamed of having, yeah. and he genuinely believed it could happen. So, yeah. so that was really important, and. You know, you can see through through his interviews just how how committed he is to that, how much belief he has in himself, how much he just is single-mindedly focused on all of this stuff. So, you know, th- there's no question that the the, the best athletes they're, they're all supremely talented, both physiologically and I think psychologically. They wouldn't have got to the top of their sport if they didn't have a you know incredible pain tolerance, the ability to, and, and not just within a race, but to be able to. Commit themselves like we were talking already for not just for a few weeks, but but for their entire career. Really, mm. um, just the hardship that they have to put themselves through. It's a it's a very hard sport, distance running for sure.
1: Yes, so, Steph, so they've all Steph got those... nodding as a distance runner.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they've all got they've all got those credentials. I think what Elliot had as far as this particular project went, there was was belief in 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 the possibility of it, he doesn't set, you know, that that old phrase of his, no human is limited. I I think a lot of people sort of put a ceiling, they know where the current world record is and they, you know, they might think, well, I can maybe, maybe I can beat that by a couple of seconds, but he doesn't put a limit on it. He's like, well, that doesn't matter. You know, you could go many, many minutes faster than that if you, if you put, if you want it, kind of thing. Mm. Um, And I suppose as a physiologist, I'm a person who, who tends to put limits on things. You know, I, 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 People say oh, he's able to give 110 percent but as scientists we know that's not really true if, if everybody puts in a big effort and you know what their capacity and capabilities are you ought to be able to calculate what the limit is um but yeah Elliot doesn't quite quite buy that i think it's fine <laughs> <laughs> fair enough
1: yeah awesome and sorry one just one question i forgot to ask you earlier andy um like obviously you know there was the the breaking two and that sort of barrier around two hours for for the men's marathon do you get a sense of what
0: the equivalent would be for the women? Uh, well, we, so Mark Joyner and Sandra Hunter and I did a paper a while back where we reckoned that Paula's 2.15.25 was already the equivalent of a, of a sub-two-hour marathon for men. And, of course, now, you know, so, so it went from 2.0.257 to the official world record of 2.0.142. I can't remember, 41, so I get all, yeah, like that, it, yeah, and of course, Paula's record has gone now, hasn't it, as well, to 214. So, I reckon mm. they're probably not far off being equivalent, I think, mm. but just amazing. I, mm. you know, Paula's, Paula's record lasted a long time, but mm. it's kind of disappointed that it went in the end. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> brilliant, you know, th- things have really, really moved on, and the women's half marathon has just been shattered, hasn't yeah. it, 62 something. I mean, that's mind blowing, and I think that takes that takes women's marathon running potentially into a completely new dimension as well. You know, the, what that's equivalent, what would that be equivalent to? I mean, you, you know, you might, it may not be ridiculous to suggest that 210 could happen before very long.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah, yep. and, and I guess with, um, with that record, there's the the women only record and then there's the, all-in kind yeah. of record because, of course, in some of those events there's the male athletes that have started earlier and then they can get a bit of a draft from some yeah. of those. So, you know, as you said, maybe some of that advantage has already been taken because yeah. of that.
2: All right. So getting into, I guess, the nutrition um, aspect of it all now, um, it's not discussed a lot in, in the documentary about the role of nutrition um, for, for breaking two, is this something that was focused on um, a lot or were the athletes kind of left to their own devices?
0: No, we absolutely did um, did give that due consideration as well. And the fact that it doesn't come through in the documentary so much, I, I guess, was just due to limit, time limits. Yeah. Um, but it was something that we, we felt was, was really important, not just in the build-up, obviously, to the race, making sure that the athletes were properly fuelled, but also obviously on the day of the race and in the race as well. So we did give it a lot of thought. Um, I mean, what we didn't do necessarily with us, because we didn't kind of parachute ourselves in and and want to change everything. We wanted to, we wanted to build the trust. We wanted to learn from the athletes and coaches, incredibly successful groups already. And it's like, well, what what are you, what are you doing so that we can um, learn from that? And then if there were little bits that we could contribute, um, that, that might be helpful. Then we were prepared to do that, but we certainly didn't try and change all of their training and all of their nutrition straight away, because clearly they wouldn't have been as successful as they already were if they weren't doing ninety nine percent of it right. But, but certainly there were things that we did uncover and things that we implemented um, as part of the project that that hopefully were helpful.
2: Yeah, and um, and so if we, I guess, think about the key nutritional um, interventions, so carbohydrate before and during the run, hydration. And supplementation with um, nitrate, which I know you've done a lot of research in that area, um, and caffeine. How do each of these impact on the fact on the factors that were mentioned earlier? So, in terms of VO two max, lactic threshold, and running a common area.
0: Well, certainly when when you're um, running at high intensities, you have to use carbohydrates. So, if you if you if you're measuring gas exchange, obviously you measure oxygen uptake, you measure carbon dioxide. Output, and that gives you a reflection of how what substrate mix is being used by the muscles and the lower the respiratory exchange ratio so if it's about 0.7 then it's you know, almost pure fat once you hit 1.0 and above then it's pure carbohydrate but you know typically with the athletes when they're they're training are probably in the 0.8s and when they're racing they're in the often in the high you know, mid to high point nine so there's a very big carbohydrate contribution to that So, yeah, you absolutely need to ensure that they've got enough carbohydrate in their bodies to be able to fuel the performance. Um, You simply can't generate energy at a sufficiently rapid rate if you're just using fat. It's quite a slow burn, literally. So, um, you know, when it came to the race itself, well, let's start with training. If they're going to do the volume that's required and if they're going to train at the intensities that are required, then they need to make sure that they're topping up their carbohydrate you know their muscle glycogen in the recovery intervals between training sessions so that they go into them with you know, occasionally reasonably high um, uh so high carbohydrate content of the diet so that their muscle glycogen actually can be re- replenished doesn't mean it has to be you know tip top all of the time and actually there's some evidence as you will be well aware that training in in a low carbohydrate condition can actually be beneficial and they often train in the morning without breakfast and so on so they're in they, they do have that kind of stimulus but you want to make sure that over the over the course of the entire week that they're not you know running on empty the whole time so we were looking for that but clearly on the day of the race. Um, when they start to taper their training, you need to make sure that there's sufficient carbohydrate in their diet and on the morning of the race so that they start the race with their muscle glycogen levels as high as they can be. But what we also know is that's probably not enough to get them right through the entire race at the intensity that you might want them to. So you therefore have to drip feed, if you like, more carbohydrate in as they as they go on. So there's a training bit, an immediate pre-race bit, and then an in-race component to the carbohydrate bit and just just to just expand slightly on that because you asked how it impacts and running economy is one of the main factors there because if you're running at a certain speed and you're using predominantly fat it will actually cost you more oxygen to run at that speed than if you were using predominantly carbohydrate so one of the reasons why your running economy might get worse might deteriorate from mile one to mile 26 is because you're running out of carbohydrate you have to start to use more fat and even though, you know, the, the speed is the same, using more fat compared to carbohydrate means that you, you actually have, you have, to, you have to you know bring in more oxygen to your muscles to metabolize that fat. So your, your economy gets worse and it means that you get closer to your V.O.T. max, which itself might have fallen off a little bit because you've become dehydrated. So all of a sudden you're at a much higher fraction of your V.O.T. max towards the end of the race compared to where you were at the beginning. So if you can find an intervention, and the obvious one clearly is carbohydrate intake, to prevent uh, too much of a shift from carbohydrate to fat, you might enable your running economy to stay closer to what it was on the start line. And, and that should, in turn, result in better performance. Because
1: yeah. that presumably would then sort of lower your critical speed a bit as well in terms of that sustainable pace, essentially. Yeah, it would do. So
0: if, you're, if it's costing you... More oxygen to run at a given speed, that does mean that your critical speed will fall with time. So at the beginning of the race, you might be going at you know 90% of your critical speed. But by there's going to be, you know, even though that speed stays the same, if the critical speed is falling over the course of the race, as your economy gets a bit worse, there'll come a point, you know, 18 miles, 20 miles, 22 miles, where there might be a crossover. And if now you're actually running at a speed that's above your critical speed, you won't be able to sustain that for very long. And, and what you'll do is reduce your speed. And essentially, that's what happens when people hit the wall. Um, I think we did do a study simultane- you know, concurrently with the Breaking 2 project. It wasn't in running. We just used cycling. But we did do two hours of heavy intensity cycle exercise. And we found that critical power fell by 10% from the start to the end of the two hours. But it was that fall was ameliorated if they consumed um, i think it was sixty or seventy grams of carbohydrate per hour so there's definitely a uh, you know a fuel a substrate um, contribution to that fall in critical power or critical speed over the course of long duration fatiguing exercise
2: and um, and what about nitrate
0: yeah um well actually interestingly with that because we'd We've been obviously researching with dietary nitrate or beetroot juice, as your listeners might know, for, for a little while. And I thought one of the interventions, one of the innovations I might literally be able to bring to the table was mm. introducing them to beetroot juice. Mm. And then I found out that Elliot Kipchoge used it in his, all of his best marathons over the last three or four years. <laughs> so it there was, there was no news to him. And he, he continues to be a very big fan. In fact, the whole NN mm. running team are, I think, sponsored by... I beat it, yeah So, um, so he he was definitely keen to carry on with that. I think the at least one other one other athlete we used it with. So yeah, and, and in terms of the ergogenic aids, then nitrate was one, and caffeine was the other. Yeah,
2: yeah, okay, yeah. Um, and um, and with the caffeine, uh, did they use that? Was that like um, they used that pre and then during um, the the event?
0: Yeah, so two athletes, You, one athlete didn't use it at all because yep. it sort of upset him a bit and he was more of an anxious athlete yes. anyway, so it was better to kind of avoid that. Yep. Uh, but two of them did and that was pre, at the kind of standard you know, standard protocol. Yep. And and in as well, I think we gave them, you know, we uh, sort of spiked their drink um, at, at I think halfway and at about 20 miles, just to kind of give them a little bit of a caffeine burst at those stages. Yep,
2: yep, yep. And were there things that, I guess, like after you did, you were able to kind of take some time to have a look at what they were doing. Um, were there things that did stand out to you that you thought, "Oh, hey, we can um, make a really good improvement here with their nutrition uh, for, for any of the of the athletes?"
0: Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, going to the training environment, what's quite interesting there is obviously Kenya and Ethiopia are side by side and they've had this huge rivalry and distance running forever. Um, but the way that they, well, the way that they, tra- the, the types of training that they do are very similar, but their their attitude to training was quite different. So in, in Kenya, it was much more kind of serene and it was much more orderly and, you know, it, everybody celebrated one another's success and they knew it would be their turn in due course and very kind of team based kind of a thing. In Ethiopia, it was much more aggressive. You know, everybody wanted to beat one another all of the time, it was that kind of thing. And, and quite a big difference in the in the sort of general diet as well. So so much more carbohydrate heavy in Kenya, lots of ugali and um, uh, spinach. So probably a lot of, a lot of nitrate or sp- something that looks like spinach anyway, but I bet it's got a high nitrate content, not very much meat. Whereas in, um, and quite plain, and Ethiopia was much meat, much more meaty and much more spicy. So that was it, that was one bit of it. Yeah. But in terms of racing, I think the athletes, What well, I mean, Elliot was certainly better educated than any of the other athletes that we'd worked with. And that's probably because he you know, had a European management company for a while. Um, but, but many of them really didn't know much about drinking during the race. They knew there were drink stations and they knew that they probably should take some occasionally but there was no strategy and we did find out with uh that he really preferred not to drink at all mm. if he could help it and there was one and i can't i should have looked this up but there was a, a race I, th- I think it was an olympic marathon where he was in contention um and it was a hot terrible you know weather conditions were awful and he hadn't drunk all the way through mm. and he you know he could have been. An Olympic medalist, and not the Olympic gold, whichever race this was, I think, yeah. but he is, you know, he got, he got, I think, dehydrated and hypothermic, and dropped off the pace and wasn't able to, uh, to continue, because of course not only are you not taking in fluid you're not taking in carbohydrate either mm. so i think the penny did drop when we started to talk to them about if you don't take on fluids and if you don't take on carbohydrates during your races the sort of thing that you might experience is this where suddenly your speed just drops away and they're like oh yeah that did happen to me <laughs> one, one or two <laughs> occasions <laughs> yeah so uh you know, so we did and then after that it was really a case of okay well i think we've convinced you that you need to do this now within the race and not when you just get yeah. thirsty either there has to be a strategy for this all the way through but you can't just rock up at a race and expect to be able to implement that straight off the bat you need to you need to practice that so that's what we did try to implement because again you know none of the athletes really ever drank during training and you you know you, it's so difficult as, as you know not only to carry a bottle but to drink yeah. when you're moving that quickly and you're ventilating so rapidly. Um, and it can be uncomfortable, and we know you can train the gut from, you know. So, so all of that stuff needed a lot of practice, and we were very keen to, um, to, you know, to to advertise that to the the runners and their coaches, and they they did take it on board. Um, you know, on reflection, I wish we'd had more time to do that. I think even more practice might have helped. Yeah. Um, but I think they understood, and they did do their best to uh, yeah. to do what we thought was best for them. Mm,
2: yep. And did you get any insights into what their sweat rates were?
0: Yeah, we did do, do a bit of that. You know, some of it was fairly crude in the field. Yep. Um, and, of course, the trouble was we knew that when we'd selected Monza and we knew that the conditions were going to be cool, mm. that was the idea anyway. And, you know, obviously sweat rates at 12 degrees C are going to be different to twenty four degrees c or whatever it is and it could be obviously very hot where they were training so we had one athlete training in madrid and the other two in one in kenya one in ethiopia so so we were getting information on that but the other thing that we did was in the march of 2017 we did a half marathon test event in monza and that was kind of a dress rehearsal for all of the staff but also for the athletes to get an eye on the you know to, to experience the course in advance um run a bit of a time trial if they wanted whatever it whatever it might be, practice the drink strategy. And during that, we, we measured core temperatures and sweat rates and such like. So that gave us some insight as well um, into, you know, it was actually quite a cool day. It was actually quite a cold day. So again, we had to make a few, um, a f- you know, a few, uh, what's you call it called, interpolations as to what the sweat rate might have been on the on the day where we hoped the conditions would be as we predicted them to be. I mean, just, just on that, one of the things we'd considered doing is bring in the, the athletes that we'd selected into a training environment, maybe in Portland, Oregon, you know, and, and there'd be some advantage to that so you could really control their mm-hmm. training. You could have put them in an environmental chamber and been very, very specific about their um Knowing what their sweat rate was, making a very extremely bespoke nutritional strategy for hydration and carb—you could have done all of that—but actually, would probably been really disruptive to them. they have been so successful training in their home environments, and they're at altitude as well, which mm. is probably beneficial. That we didn't really want to disrupt them too much from that, and the decision was taken that we'll just just let them to their own devices, and we'll you know we'll educate them, we'll drop in, we'll check on them, um, and we'll have lots of uh, two-way communication, but. Yeah, you know, we're going to trust them to prepare as as best they can in, in the way they know works for them in the past. Yeah,
2: and um, so I guess like for for during the the run, obviously carbohydrate oxidation rates are going to be a lot higher than the rate that they can um, possibly consume um, during exercise. What was the approach um, in terms of yeah how much carbohydrate they should be aiming for? Um, during the event, and and how was that achieved in terms of um, mode, gels, drinks?
0: Yeah, um, so I mentioned we'd done the study in the lab where we found that um, about 70 grams of carbohydrate mm. per hour was sufficient to prevent the, the, the substantial drop-off in critical power. So we were aiming at about 70 grams per hour. I mean, we were aware that you know possibly 80 or 90 could be possible, but we didn't want to push it too much. We felt that if they went into the race fully topped up, um, and then we could feed them maybe about 70 grams per hour that you know so that was the goal and um, what we decided to do in the race because there's actually nothing in the rule book to prevent athletes being fed more frequently if you wanted them to be obviously in major races it's typically a drink station every 5k but the problem with every 5k is you end up with you know if you, if you want to take in 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour and you want to do it chiefly through um Beverage consumption that ends up being quite a big bolus of fluid at each five k, and then you've got this big bottle that you're trying to carry along, and then you're trying to, you know, it takes you longer to drink it. And we thought, well, one way to get around that practically would be to feed them smaller amounts, but much more frequently. Mm-hmm. So we decided that we'd give them um, sort of the idea was that they would consume about a hundred mils of fluid every seven minutes approximately. Yep. And it was about an 8% carbohydrate solution because the temperature was low. Mm. We weren't expecting massive, you know, sweat rates, but we bore that in mind as well. So it was a balance between knowing what their sweat rate was and trying to replace not all of that, mm. but a reasonable fraction of it, but simultaneously making sure they were getting as close to 70 grams per hour of carbohydrate as we could. Yep. So it worked out that, um, you know, hundred mils every seven minutes gives you about 850 mils per hour. Um, which gives you a, an eight percent solution gives you about seventy grams of carbohydrate per hour, mm. provided that they, you know, consume all of that at each, at each opportunity. And they didn't quite do that because you know. So we gave them the bottles, and then they would take a couple of swigs. They were encouraged to finish it, of course, but sometimes they didn't feel like it, or they didn't, and they drop. It, you know, and then we collected most of the bottles afterwards, and they didn't quite go as much down them as we'd hoped. But that, certainly that was the strategy. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yep.
2: Um, yeah, because I, I guess like going at the speed that they're going, it's, um, yeah, bloody hard to be able to get that in. So, um, yeah.
0: It certainly is, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that is a it's a hell of a speed. Two, it's about you know, two minutes and 50 yeah. seconds per kilometre. And, mm. you know, the arms and the legs are, are pumping pretty fast. The gut is moving. They're ventilating that, I don't know, Hundred and thirty liters per minute. So just finding an opportunity to swallow when you mm. breathe in at that kind of rate is not easy.
1: Yeah, yep. and was it was that a big adjustment for them? Like that quantity was that something they took quite a while to get used to?
0: It was, and, and, and as I mentioned, it was something that we'd um, encourage them to practice a lot, and I think they had tried to do that. And there are you know um the photos that I show in some of my talks where where you can see the athletes running down the down the road holding a bottle of drink and that was a that had never been done before mm. so mm. and they, they passed the drinks around and so that became definitely um, a, a factor um, within the longer runs that they were doing which didn't exist before and you know it's not just Elliot that's uh, really pushed the marathon on in his wake you know there are more people running two three two four two five and I think the nutritional component to that as well as just the inspiration that Elliot provided and the better knowledge of drafting and of course the new footwear, all of that has contributed. But the nutritional thing is probably not to be overlooked. Mm. I think they did they were all the, the top Africans were a bit blasé about that in the past, or they you know they didn't they didn't take it quite as seriously as they might. But now they do. And I think they're they're much more more rigorous about the way that they prepare nutritionally and and consume products um, during marathon races
2: yeah and um so uh, i guess going back to nitrate because your your twitter handle is at andy beatrich um (laughs) there's there's been a lot of talk i guess in the last few years um that nitrate supplementation is perhaps either less effective or not effective at all in elite athletes um whereas perhaps in recreational runners and cyclists, they they may get benefits, um, perhaps more benefits. Um, Others talk about the discovery of endogenous nitrate stores and that elite athletes may not benefit from supplementation because they already have a large dietary nitrate intake and therefore storage. So where do you feel we're at now with our understanding of nitrates and sports performance for both the recreational and then the elite level athletes.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of summarized it yourself pretty much in your in your question. I think um I think there is evidence that it's less effective at the at the top level. Yeah. But that doesn't mean to say that it's ineffective yeah. and there's certainly no evidence that it does anybody any any harm mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And I mean it might only be a handful of seconds and it's very difficult for us Scientifically, given the noise that you get in performance on a day-to-day basis to know that, um, so you end up with a, you know, a no effect, mm. but that doesn't mean that in an individual athlete on the right day. And it's interesting. So I'm on a few, you know, this is all anecdote now, and I don't like to go, go, go that far with things generally, but I'm on a, a Facebook group with three hour marathon people and they're all massive believers in, in beetroot juice. They all get on it a right. few days before the race and mm. they swear blind yeah. That it improves their performance. Yeah. Um, you know, to a man or a woman, it's like there's virtually no dissent about that. So that's, uh, you know, that's not sub two, that's sub yeah. three, yeah. but it's still yeah. a pretty high standard. Yeah. Um, so there does seem to be something there. It isn't you know, our, our original work was looking at. Um, we found that exercise economy or efficiency was better. So we said right at the beginning of the talk that being more economical. Yeah. Um, is definitely one of those factors well if you can improve your running economy uh you know through some intervention other than training whether it's footwear or nutrition i mean nobody i certainly was the last one to suspect that a nutritional intervention could reduce the oxygen cost of exercise yeah. but there was one study before ours that suggested that it might and then our study would juice, you know it was like i can't i could barely believe it myself mm-hmm. but you know we've we've shown it again and again and so have others now so there does seem to be in fact we just published a paper in journal of physiology with colleagues from the university of copenhagen where we measure muscle vo2 for the first time directly and um, acute beetroot juice supplementation reduces muscle oxygen uptake Mm -hmm. it's not you know when you measure it at the lung obviously uh, it's it's not quite so quite so direct but you know um, i think that's pretty convincing if you can show that muscle vo2 is lower so there's there's clearly an effect there obviously in the extremely elite athlete they've they've already optimized mm. their efficiency mm. so the likelihood that something some acute dietary intervention could impact it further is going to be less mm. but in addition to those you know if you can improve your exercise efficiency or economy that should improve your endurance performance and there are studies that indicate that that can be true but we also found that even sprint performance and just just muscle contractile function and and power and force generation is better as well so we're finding that so we, i think elite endurance athletes might not benefit so much but elite athletes in other sports might still benefit it's not the elite status necessarily it's perhaps more the the type of activity that they focus that they concentrate on mm.
2: and so i wonder potentially then um more for like the ultra endurance, let's say runners, where obviously having a like being really efficient runner um, is quite important in those um, events. So do you think that it might even be potentially more beneficial for, for those types of athletes?
0: Yeah, it could be, actually. I mean, no, obviously studying ultra-endurance yeah. is a lot more difficult, isn't it? Getting people to come into the lab to run for an hour yep. or two hours is not enough. <laughs> Alan's,
2: <laughs> Alan's struggling to get people to come and run for five hours on the treadmill at the moment. So, okay.
0: <laughs> Well, next time you do that, on one occasion, give them some nitrate. though We might know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was one study that we did where we we fed... Uh, the athletes nitrate after an athlete. they did two hours of, of running and yep. we gave them nitrate either not at all or on one occasion just only before and not during yep. and then on a third occasion before and one hour into it yep. and then we were looking at we took muscle biopsy to look at muscle glycogen and we we measured oxygen uptake and in uh, when the when that group took the beetroot twice both before and during. Yep. There was less of an upward drift in VO2 and muscle glycogen seemed to be spared. It wasn't significant, but yeah. is a, you know we didn't probably have quite enough subjects, couldn't, couldn't encourage them, enough of them to come in and do that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but there was a suggestion there that there might be some sort of you know energy sparing and glycogen sparing over the longer term
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, if, if you consume it, not just before, but possibly during as well. So, yeah, I think there's an indication that ultra endurance might benefit. Mm-hmm.
2: Yep um were there other nutritional strategies implemented um for breaking too so i guess you know we've briefly touched on the the nitrate um the hydration the carbohydrate and and the caffeine um what about um specific cooling agents it was a cool race anyway um menthol or anything like that used
0: no we didn't that's that's about it really that's as far as it went because we were you know, the predictions worked out quite well. So Monza in early May, yes. I think, when we got to the – it was about 10 or 11 degrees, and then maybe by the start of the race it was maybe 12 and it, it crept up a bit. But it was it was sufficiently cool, I think, and still um, that we didn't need to do much more than that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And um, I guess from your work with Breaking 2 and with your work with um, Elite – British athlete like Paula um, Ratcliffe. What have you learnt from kind of the field and from textbooks or peer reviewed papers that um, can't tell us about nutrition for elite distance running?
0: That can't tell us, or that that can? Yeah, that can't. Um, You know, I think all of this stuff is. Is is bespoke. It's individual, mm. and you can't. you know, I think that the textbook descriptions of this is a very good place to start, mm. um, but then you've got to go through a process of trial and error mm. with with these athletes. And of course, that's what you sh- you, you can do as a, as a somebody who's you know who, who's employed to support an athlete. That's your job is to. Is to work with them to find out what's optimal for them. Um, so you can't assume that every you know it's one size doesn't fit all. And with yeah. with break into what I didn't say is that the t- the volumes that we gave them and the, the carbohydrate um, fractions and such like were slightly different between between the athletes as well. So you you have to yeah. make those measurements in the field on the athletes. Don't assume too much. Yeah. And and also you know athletes have different different preferences, um, flavors that they like and. Yeah. You know and and that's all really important as well giving somebody the same flavor that they don't like they're just not going to take enough of it and actually just i learned this from louise burke actually um you know give them something different at mile 20 just to kind of stimulate their kind of sense buds a little bit just bring things just surprise them keep them interested because one of the things about the marathon and i you know most i, I was better at middle distance and short long distance and i've just started running marathons marathon is a very different ball game compared to anything else it's um it it is more of a mind game you have to stay focused you can't allow yourself to get bored it's this nagging fatigue Mm. you know and it's actually feels pretty easy most of the way and that's what's weird about it you know when you're racing 5k and even 10k you're used to kind of pushing things on a bit breathing hard being aggressive and it's really not that at all it's, it's totally the opposite you have to kind of disengage mm. and, and switch everything off and you know I, I, I found that so but actually experiencing the events if i've been successful as a physiologist at distance running i think it's not least because i, I used to be one or i still try to be one occasionally and, and um, speak the same language and when i'm talking to them about training and nutrition at least i've tried it myself so i can relate to what i'm trying to advise them upon
1: was mm. going to be my next question, actually, was that I think you ran your first marathon only a couple of years ago, first full-distance marathon, that is, um, well after breaking two happened. Was there anything from that experience of, of running it yourself, I mean, apart from sort of the, the pacing that you just mentioned, did it give you any other kind of new insights or, or maybe different perspectives that you hadn't had not having
0: run the full 42.2 yourself? Well, a bit like, like I just described. Um, it's a bloody long way. It's really, really hard, (laughs) all of that stuff. And, you know, don't start one if you're not really fit and if you're not at full health and the nutrition during the event does make a hell of a big difference. And if it's hot, that can be really draining as well. So yeah, I've I've run two so far. i trained for more and I've either not made the start line or I actually ruptured my, um, Planta fascia during the Paris Marathon one time, but the two that I finished, one was the Sea of Galilee Marathon, where I wasn't, I wasn't either very fit, but I'd gone to the Sea of Galilee Marathon conference, and I, I thought, well, I ought to run it now while I'm here, and I'll just get round. And I was hoping for about three hours twenty, but I, it was really, you know, I, I was actually slightly ill. I hadn't slept much the night before. The nutrition going into the race was poor. I didn't have the things that I needed. The nutrition on the course was poor, and it was an extremely hot day, and it just got hotter as the day went on, and it it was a nightmare. I don't really remember anything after 20 miles, and uh, but I kept going, and I finished in about 3.34, so that wasn't a very pleasant experience, that one. So I was determined to do better, and then I ran 3.01 in Moscow um, a little bit later, which was better, and I think that would have been sub-three, were it not for the fact that the weather was also terrible but in a completely different it was like min- it was minus three I think on the yeah. start line and hail and yeah. bitterly cold and quite hilly even though they promised it was a fast and flat course so <laughs> um, but I've still not broken three so I'm, I, I still intend to do that I've had a few injuries and I had a bit of COVID and things like that but that's that's the plan. But yeah, the other thing I, I did notice is that clearly during the course of the race, you can feel your critical speed drop. Yeah. So what a speed that was comfortable yeah. is now lo- no longer comfortable as you get, because you're now in, getting very close to your critical speed. Mm. But not only that, your D prime changes as well. So you're so early in the race. Again, if you need to accelerate to avoid another runner or get to a drink station, you can do that you've got a lot more flexibility in your speed when you get towards the tail end of the marathon you are locked into that one steady pace you, you simply can't accelerate yeah. at all so so you know your everything can, yeah so it's, it's really interesting to experience all that it definitely helps
1: yeah, actually while you're saying that' it's one question I always had like in a sport maybe there's a little bit more intermittent but still an endurance sport maybe road cycling, you know professional road cycling is a good example of that where you know you might be riding for four or five hours but you you know there might be an attack at the start and something in the middle and then you know one right at the end. To what extent and over what sort of time period does that D prime or W prime actually recover over time while you're still exercising?
0: Yeah, really good question, and people are still still researching that. So, um, a chap called Phil Skeber um, did his PhD. he's an yeah. American physician, but he came and kind of did his PhD with me. Very very into his, his mathematics and his performance. And so, the critical speed and critical power model have generally applied to continuous type exercise. Um, but for sure, you know when you there are ways by which you could use that model to prescribe optimal interval training. As long as I mean, the assumption is that when you're exercising above your critical speed that your d prime declines in a linear fashion so the, the higher the speed that you're running at is above your critical speed the more rapidly that declines etc mm. so so you've got that bit that's relatively straightforward but then when you drop below your critical speed you can actually replenish some of the d prime that you lost before but unfortunately it doesn't replenish in a linear fashion if it did it would be easy mm. <laughs> um, it seems to recover in a, in a curvy linear fashion, which depends on a whole bunch of factors, including the fitness of the person, uh, the intensity of the recovery interval mm. that you're doing, how fatigued you are. So there's a whole bunch of complexity, but there are, I know, I know people who are interested in trying to map all of that, because if you could solve that for each individual, then you could have a real-time indication of where your W' prime battery or D' prime mm. store is during the race itself. Uh, we did, I don't know if you saw, just in um, just in the last couple of weeks, there's a paper with, with Breaking Two colleagues from Nike, actually, where we map what happens to um, D prime balance, as we call it, in uh, runners in the 5,000 metres and 10,000 metres in the 2017 World Athletics Championships. Yes. yes yeah, so was you know took the silver in the 5k to everybody's surprise because he you know blitzed the world in all the, all the other major championships up to that date. But he won the 10k, and we were interested in you know was there something about the, the tactics that were used and the pacing profiles that could explain why he won the one race and why he, why he didn't win the other? And it turns out that there is, and you can if you make a few assumptions and you know the speed of each 400 meter lap relative to each athlete's critical speed on the start line you can calculate what their D-prime is after each lap.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, the 5,000 metres was just too slow in the first half of it, and then it became a bit of a burn-up. And while Mo Farah had the higher critical speed, there was somebody called Edris who had a much higher D-prime, and that just balanced the, the race in his favour. And he had more D-prime left with a with a lap to go and um, had a faster finishing lap and won and the gold medal. So there's lots of physiological and performance insight you can get from understanding critical speed and D prime, not just in a continuous context, but as you just said there in an intermittent one, and you could apply that for interval training, but you can also apply it in these sort of stochastic um, events, because it's pretty rare. It's not just in cycling, but also in running. It's pretty rare for everybody to be running at their best possible speed for, for the distance at all mm-hmm. times, especially in major championships. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. Well, to finish off with, we'll just um, come back and I guess close the loop on the the Breaking Two project. So, you know, looking back on it, sort of afterwards, there was all the you know the talk as you mentioned at the start about the shoes, about the drafting and the paces, and and obviously we've you know talked about nutrition today. Sort of reflecting on that. Where do you think, like, do you think that there were certain areas where gains were made where maybe you didn't expect them to be made or other things that you thought, oh, this is going to be amazing and actually it turned out not to be that effective in hindsight?
0: I think it's, it's actually quite hard to, to unpick um, hmm. where the gains were made. Because, I mean, it was, I think Elliot's performance in Monza was, was really the game changer you know, much more so than the Ineos One Fifty Nine. I think where he took two and a half minutes, because there were people who didn't believe it was possible. And all of a sudden, not only is it possible, but it's you know it's almost certain to now, to now happen. Mm. But we've made so many changes, got the got the course and the environment right. You know, optimised the pacing strategy, drafted the athletes as much as we possibly could, tried to implement the best um, nutritional strategy as well. What have I forgotten? And and then the advent of the new shoe. All of those things added something whether it was you know a minute for one thing and 20 seconds for another or they were all 30 seconds each it's really hard to to untangle Mm -hmm. but it was that whole collective effort i think that that was the important bit um but i think the thing that happened in, in vienna it was a little bit cooler again that was probably beneficial um the drafting was essentially the same. They went out and back rather than round. I don't think that really made any difference to the energetics. Mm-hmm. I think they probably were got the nutrition a bit better because Elliot was still learning so they started to use mm-hmm. drinks and uh, gels. Mm-hmm. so you know i I, th- I think they were we were on the road with the with the nutritional strategy and I think we'd implemented most of it, but I think you can always get a bit better with that and I think Elliot and now others are nailing their nutrition better than they they had in the past. So so I think that's what we really changed.
1: Mm, I remember seeing the gels sort of taped onto the side of his bottle so he could sort of hold the bottle up and then just sort of get the gel out at the same time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and I guess finally, um, any key learnings that you think that recreational athletes might be able to take from the experience that you've had with the Breaking 2 project that they can then sort of reinvest maybe into their,
0: their own running? All the things we really spoke about, obviously being as fit as you can be on the start line, understanding what the what the the things that contribute to your running fitness are. You know, so training to enhance your VO2 max and your lactate threshold and your running economy, making sure you taper properly, um, pacing. You know, having realistic expectations and pacing yourself properly. If you get the chance to draft behind other athletes and reduce your energy cost, then do so. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you pick up your drinks, mm-hmm. um, you know, early and often. Get your carbohydrate in. Um, yeah, and and, and, and probably the, the shoes <laughs> and train the gut. Yeah, and don't don't just show up at the race and expect you're going to be able to pick up a drink every five k yeah. and neck it all because you really, you really won't. it will be a rude <laughs> awakening. So practice that for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay, well, I'm going to hand over to Steph now to finish off with our little bonus round.
2: Cool. So these are five um questions just for the listeners to get to know a bit more about you Andy um so if you could go back to the end of high school and start again um what would you what sort of career path would you choose would it be the same or would it be different
0: I think it would probably be pretty much the same I do always uh joke or say to people that if i you know if i won the won the lottery i'd probably continue to do pretty much the job that i do already i've i found kind of found my niche i think i do still get excited about publishing papers and and working with great athletes and living vicariously through through their experiences i suppose i you know at the end of high school i wanted to be Elliot kipchoge i wanted to be the olympic marathon champion and the the world record holder yeah but i wasn't going to be quite good enough I think I might have been able to go to an Olympics, but for me, that wasn't going to be sufficient. So I had to find some other way mm. to kind of, you know, try to be the best in the world at something. But um, the fact that I'm, I've been able to help people like Paula and Elliot has kind of helped me tick that box at the same time. Mm. So, yeah, probably something like that.
2: Yeah. And one thing on your bucket list you're yet to do?
0: Break three hours.
2: I thought you'd say that, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> trouble is the thing is back in March during lockdown, I was really, really fit, and then i uh I went and injured myself, but uh, I think I would have done it, but trouble is now so i've I signed up for the Brighton Marathon in April, so I got six months to get ready for that, but really? trouble is you know as i I'll be fifty two by then, so it's going to be harder than it was three years ago, but there's a race against time <laughs> to try and get this done
2: get it done, yeah, um. And what's a sport you've always wanted to try, but you haven't yet had the chance?
0: Mm, I think I've actually tried most sports. I've even done tobogganing, and I'm not very good at...
2: I was going to say, like, bobsledding.
0: Yeah, I've done that, yeah. Oh, I've, I've, yeah, I've seen you in a so bobsled way. with Aspen, was not it? And I've jumped out of a... I've done parachuting. and I've done most things, actually. I'm at, I'm, my, my recreational sport, as well as doing a bit of running, is um, pool you know, oh. Playing pool or sneaker. And I'm, I'm actually pretty. If I I, I. I sometimes have this fantasy that I could give it all up and go and play professional pool in Las Vegas for a couple of years, see so, yeah, how well I do.
2: What about base jumping? Uh, what's that one? That's the one where they jump like um, from a mountain and they've got.
0: Or yeah, yeah.
2: And they've just got like yeah. these suits. Oh yeah, so it's not- or the wings. Yeah, I haven't done it.
0: I haven't done it. I would. I would do it though. There's not mm. much I wouldn't give. A, give it a go In to. The crack. I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you live by any piece of advice or um, or any mottos?
0: Well, the one that springs to mind. And I'm not sure how sort of um, politically correct this is now, but my PE teacher back at high school, Mr. Farr, you know, he was a pretty hard taskmaster. Um, but he'd be, he would always recognise people who tried their best, and he didn't like whingers. And one of his phrases was "suffer silence," because yeah. you know he'd make us do all of these crazy stunts, and people go, "Oh, sir!" And you know he would he would just make them do extra press ups or burpees or something. And he liked people who kind of <laughs> kind of grit their teeth, showed a bit of determination, and got on with it. And I think when it comes to marathon training or sometimes yeah. some academic work, gritting your teeth and getting on yeah. with it—you know, taking the rough with the smooth. Yeah. Is probably a good thing to do because you do get stressful periods and you get hard times, but then the peaks that you achieve at the end of that actually make it all worthwhile. So going through a little bit of suffering occasionally, I think is uh, mm. is not too bad uh, a, a thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. And who's someone you've always wanted to meet but you've not yet had the chance?
0: I think I've met most of the. So I'm you know I, I'm starstruck with top athletes. Yeah, and the fact that I've been able to, you know, I can call people like Paula and, and Elliot friends is yeah. fact, is brilliant. Yeah. And um, I'm big. I would love '80s pop stars as well. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Gary Newman, being my, he's probably. I don't think he was ever very famous in your neck of the woods, but he's still going strong. But I have met him on multiple occasions. <laughs> um, so, so I don't. I don't think there's anybody left that I really want to meet. Actually, that's a tricky question. I've been awesome. really fortunate that I've met most of the key people.
2: The one question that we always ask listeners, and we've taken it out because we always get the the same answer, but I'm intrigued to see what you what your response is. What's one thing that you you can't travel without?
0: Can't travel without. Mm. What do people usually say? I can't
2: think of any. <laughs> Caffeine. Uh, yep.
0: Coffee
2: machine. An espresso. Wine, some like. Sort. Yep.
0: AeroPress. I do I, I'm a kind of a I'm, I'm a Brit so I do enjoy my uh, my tea mm. and I miss it when I'm abroad <laughs> and I probably should take tea bags with me when I go to the states because you just can't get a decent cup of tea anywhere okay. over there. Okay.
2: There we go. That's something <laughs> different. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely i think it's, we're just the coffee yep. snobs down here all right well thanks so much for your time andy it was great to to, to chat to you uh, about the, the breaking two project and and i guess all the the things that happen with that and, and obviously the nutrition side which is i think we said off air beforehand is is one aspect of the project that probably hasn't been talked about quite as much as the the shoes and the drafting and the, the testing and all that sort of thing mm-hmm. so thanks so yeah. much for your time
0: well, thank you both for the very nice questions. I I enjoyed it. The uh the time flew by. <laughs>
2: thank you. Awesome. Thanks, very Andy. Very interesting. That was awesome. Thank you very much, Andy, and um thank you for sort of yeah, breaking down the science into like it being quite easy to understand because um it can get quite complex and what you were tackling was definitely um, pretty, pretty complicated. So thank you for that. And I'm going to hand it over to the lovely um, summary guru, Alan, to um, just give us, uh, I guess, some key take home messages from, from our chat with Andy.
1: Yeah, well, there was so much from that. I uh, really enjoyed that discussion with Andy. Um, so whole bunch of things. I guess the first thing, we didn't actually touch on this uh, in a lot of detail in the in the interview, but um, if you read the some of the papers, the research papers we talked about in there, uh, one of them was published, I think earlier this year, or might have been late last year, uh, where they actually published the, the aggregated data from the 16 athletes that they tested for Nike in the selection process for the Breaking 2 project. And they did some interesting stuff. They got them on the treadmill in the lab obviously measured their VO2 max and that sort of thing. They measured their running economy and they also measured um, how much or what percentage of their VO2 max they would have to run at to maintain that sort of sub two hour pace. And I guess whether the athletes could or couldn't maintain that ongoing, which is that sort of critical speed that Andy talked about um, and, and found that only a subset of those athletes could actually maintain the required speed to break two hours at that Sort of pace and, and have it at a steady state. So, you know, at all just below their critical speed. Um, and when you look at it, you know, often, particularly for the practitioners out there, might think about, you know, as people running at, you know, 60% of their VO2 max, which is kind of your typical ultra marathon pace, um, you know, up to maybe 70 to 80% VO2 max for, for most um, recreational or competitive runners for like a half marathon or a marathon. These guys were able to maintain that steady state at 95% of their VO2 max, which is just phenomenal um, without, you know, that massive buildup of, of lactate and and going into what we call that D prime. So the part above the critical threshold where you're gonna fatigue really easily. Um, and, and that's what it requires. So, you know, as Andy said, these guys didn't necessarily have these out of this world VO2 maxes. They're just able to sustain a pace at, you know, 95% of their, or 90 to 95% of their VO2 max for a long period of time. Whereas most people, they just wouldn't be able to do that. They would just fatigue way too easily. Um, so I think that was one of the, the first takeaways from me and, and something when I saw that paper, I was like, oh, wow, that's that's really impressive. So VO2 max, yeah, it's impressive, but it's the percentage of that that they can sustain over a long period of time that's, that's truly exceptional. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the other things that came out of that on the nutrition side of things... Andy talked about the fact that they did I guess intervene a little bit in terms of suggestions particularly around the fluid with someone like Zerzanay who'd never really drunk fluid during a race before um, but they didn't intervene too much you know they didn't take the the runners out of their normal training environment they didn't try to you know, impose a, a strict regime of what they wanted on the athletes um, because you know if you take them way out of their normal habits and routines that you know, could probably go pear-shaped as, as much as it could help. Uh, in terms of the nutrition strategies that they focused on for their specific run itself, obviously carbohydrate, and that's a really important one in terms of running economy. So uh, Andy mentioned the fact there, and this comes back right to our very first episode 1A with Professor Louise Burke, uh, where she's been researching this, is the fact that you, know, you, you need less oxygen to produce the same amount of energy from carbohydrate compared to fat or the flip side to that when you're working at 95% of your VO2 max your oxygen is a limiting factor so you've only got a certain amount of oxygen coming in there's a ceiling to that so you want to be able to make the most energy you can from that amount of oxygen so with carbohydrate you can make uh, about five percent more energy from each liter of oxygen that you bring in compared to fat so clearly to run sub two hour marathon you want to be a carbohydrate burning machine not a fat burning machine for that reason. Uh, The other interventions they looked at were caffeine, which was spoken about, uh, nitrate, beetroot juice, which, as he said, you know, Elliot Kipchoge was already using that prior to, to this project, um, and obviously the, the fluid side of things. Uh, in terms of how much carbohydrate, they were going for around 70 grams an hour of carbohydrate, so sometimes you might read guidelines up to 90%, but they didn't feel that that was realistic running at that speed. Um, and even then, with the aim of the 70 grams coming from little liquid in little 100 mil flasks, they weren't actually able to get all of that in each time they were handed one of those off a bike. Um, So they were getting probably a little bit less than that 70 grams an hour of carbs. Um, They only used liquids, an 8% solution, uh, and they didn't use any gels through this run. Although, as Andy noted, um, and I think you and I both when we saw it, Steph, were messaging each other at the time, certainly Elliot was using gels with the INEOS 159 project um, you know, two years later when he did break the two-hour mark uh, and they had them taped to the, the side of his drink bottle so he could pick up the drink bottle, the gel was attached to it and just rip it off and, and suck the gel um, as almost like a second opening to the drink bottle in a way. Um, They had to feed much more frequently, so normally in a marathon you'd have aid stations every 5Ks, but they were doing it about every two and a half off the bike, which is one of the reasons that it couldn't be a ratified legal world record, Uh, apart from the paces coming in and out. One of the issues was the fact that they were feeding off a bike, not stationary. and that was mainly because they couldn't tolerate the volume that they would need to consume if they were only feeding every, every 5Ks. Um, I thought what was interesting, actually, we didn't talk about this in the interview, but um, most people are aware that Elliot is sponsored by Morton um, and their product is designed to be consumed as a, a 16% solution. But in fact, they were giving it as an, an 8% solution. So I thought that was interesting too. Uh, it's not quite how the, the product was, was originally designed or, or intended, I suppose um and i think that the final thing i guess in hindsight from andy's perspective is he would have liked more opportunity for the athletes to practice the nutrition strategy more and i think you know throughout all of these podcasts it's a theme that comes up again and again and again is practice your nutrition strategy as much as you can in training before you get to race day um, because sometimes it's going to go pear-shaped and you want to find out about that as early as you can in the process so you can Um, do something about that Um, or you know to improve your tolerance so it doesn't go pear-shaped on race day so that sort of gut training that we've that we've spoken about in previous episodes as well so yeah overall I think a really interesting insight as I said at the start you know a lot of this stuff is um, things that haven't really been covered in the documentaries and articles that have been written about the breaking two project. so it was great to to hear it from Andy who was involved in in rolling it out Mm.
2: yep yeah um Super, super interesting, um, and yeah, we're really lucky to to grab some of his time. So, thank you very much. For yeah, that. absolutely. Uh, so, just in terms of our socials, please do if you've got any any questions, um, even if they're questions on like episodes that we've covered that um, might just take a little bit of time. Alan and I are always happy to then respond to those in our actual um, you know mainstream podcast topic. Um, so please send them to us um, whether that be on our Instagram, Facebook, Twitter account at The Long Munch and uh, you can listen to us on all your popular uh, podcast platforms. The next episode, we are up to number twenty-six, and this is actually also a pretty special one too. Al.
1: yeah, absolutely. So, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, it's our one-year anniversary of the podcast this week. So, our very first episode on low, you know, is low carb right for me with Professor Louise Burke was uh, released. I think it was the twenty-fourth of November of uh, last year, from memory. Um, so, we decided what we might do as a bit of a celebration of the one year anniversary as opposed to this one, which was the 50th episode, is to do a quick fire one year summary. So we're going to have the challenge, Steph, this could go pear shaped, we haven't recorded it yet. (laughs) Uh, the, The challenge of trying to do very short, quick, you know, 20, 30 second summaries of every single topic question that we've had in our previous 24 topics to date.
2: You know what, Al? I started writing on mine and I think I've got to refine refine mine. I've seen yours and they're like nice and succinct. The dot points? Yeah, and you've got me that like my sister will tell you, I'm just like I go all around. (laughs) (laughs) So don't worry if you like open the Excel, like our little workbook and you see mine, don't worry, I'll refine it. It's just where I'm starting at. That's okay, we've got time,
1: we've got time. <laughs> I think we'll have to have one of those little timers where you like in, you know, in chess, yeah. how they ding them when they finished and it's the other person's turn.
2: Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Let's make it a competition because then I, I like winning so I don't like losing. So that might help me, yeah, get it, get it down.
1: <laughs> Not competitive here, are we?
2: <laughs> so yeah, no, that, that'll be a really, really good one. Uh, so please uh, listen to that. And I think that's, that's pretty much all from us. This will be a pretty decent maybe length um, podcast but real worth the listen. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening to us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just reiterating that, you know, massive thank you to everyone who's listened to, to these podcasts, no matter if it's one episode or, or all 50 of them over the last year. It's been an absolute pleasure doing them. Uh, Steph and I have really enjoyed it. Um, and we really appreciate all the feedback we get from people and the, the fact that people have uh, found them useful, informative, enjoy, uh, enjoyable, entertaining, whatever it is, whatever you're getting out of them. Um, it, it's certainly been worth it from our perspective. So uh, yeah, looking forward to another great year of podcasting ahead we've got some great topics lined up for the the completion of this year but also you know some really great ones some ones that we actually had in mind right back at the start of the podcast that we've just been waiting to line up some people to to come on the podcast to do um some really exciting ones and maybe at the end of the year we'll give you a bit of a preview of of next year
2: yep. awesome all right we'll see you soon
1: see everyone